Tape Heads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Tape Heads is the podcast where we choose a VHS tape from either my collection or Lindsay's collection. We watch it and then we talk about it. This week we're over in Lindsay's collection and what did we watch? We watched the 1992 classic Death Becomes Her, starring Meryl Streep, Bruce Willis, and Goldie Hawn. Had you seen this before, Sean? Oh, yeah. This wasn't one that was a staple at my household, but we definitely rented it a couple times. Certain images, the macabre imagery of this movie definitely sticks out in my mind. Mm -hmm. I definitely have recollections of watching this. It's been a while, though. It's been some time, so it was was interesting to revisit. This was a movie that I really loved. It was another of the VHS tapes that I kept in my room because I considered it more mine than anyone else's. This is one of those movies where I watch it again and I think, man, should I have watched this that much as a child? Because watching it, it doesn't really um, show great things about relationships between women. Yeah, it's all about vanity and it's a very catty and mean movie. It's definitely aimed more at adults. I guess we should attempt a brief summary of the film for those Uh, of you who haven't seen it in a while. Not so fast, Lindsay. Hold your horses. Were there any trailers on this? No, there were not. <laughs> this is the first <laughs> tape I've chosen that hasn't had trailers. Although, admittedly, it's also the first tape I've chosen that wasn't made for children. So I think the lesson is is that we really advertise excessively toward children. Yep, I agree. But I'm slowly creeping up on you. <laughs> Wait, what's your total? Do you have any idea? Two. Still two. Still two. I meant like what, fifteen? Thanks to all the Disney movies. <laughs> I have Most no idea. Of that which was for from Three Musketeers. Yeah. But sorry, continue. What genre would you say this film is, Sean? It's not quite horror. I would almost call it a dark comedy with mm-hmm. fantasy and horror elements. Okay. I would first and foremost describe it as a dark or black comedy. Yeah, I think that's a perfect descriptor. Essentially, this is a film about two women, one of whom is kind of dowdy. She's, you know, this is Goldie Hawn, she, but she's definitely made down. She's got terrible hair, wears awful clothes, <laughs> and she's really jealous of, I'm guessing, her childhood friend. It wasn't really quite explained why they know each other but Meryl Streep is a diva so it's it's kind of odd because this movie is partly them fighting over Bruce Willis but then you really find out that they don't care much for him it's really just more that they want to fight with each other and that's what it ends up being about to some extent the rivalry is so huge that you know this nebbish doctor that Bruce Willis plays is more just a token, you know, in this rivalry. It's just what they happen to be fighting over. I think it's kind of like he's a little prize that one of them can use to prove that she has greater worth than the other. And speaking of dressing down, they really do a number on Bruce Willis in this movie. Oh, God. Because, I mean, he at this point he'd done two of the Die Hard movies, and he'd done Moonlighting, of course, and mm-hmm. so he was almost kind of like a, a hunk. Oh, yeah, but, a uh, heartthrob. But they dress him down in the baggiest of clothings. He's a drunk. He's he's playing a milk toast. Yeah, he's... Just... he's He's said to be impotent, like he's not a prize by any means, yet these no. women are, are fighting over him. 
Just because the other woman wants him. So at the beginning of the film, he's with Goldie Hawn. Bruce and Meryl end up together, and the rivalry between Meryl and Goldie Hawn seemed to just, it seems to just explode, and Goldie Hawn goes genuinely insane. There's several seven years later gaps at the beginning of the film that are really interesting. Like, a lot of ground is covered in the opening five or ten minutes of the film. You see Goldie Hawn living the life of I don't even know how to well, describe she's a, she's a morbidly obese cat lady is yeah that's, that's really the, that's that's perfect it almost looks like she's eating cat food like she opens her cupboard and it's just all cat food it's depressing she's eating a gallon of ice cream oh, out it is of the ice container cream, but she's smearing it all over her face the cats are meowing there's stuff everywhere and she cackles as she watches Meryl Streep die in one of her films she's become fixated on getting back at her old rival. By the time that we're finally caught up to the main timeline of the film, we're another seven years later in. So ultimately 14 years. Yeah. It's an epic rivalry between these two catty vain women. I think one of the things I asked you today was whether or not you felt like any of the characters had positive qualities to them or like anything that was nice that would draw you in. And other than looks, not so much for the ladies. I would say that Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn, I like them a lot just as actors. And so I really enjoyed their performances, but neither one is a sympathetic character by any means. My sympathies go to Bruce Willis, I think, in all of it, because I feel like he's the only one who really gets the message of the movie, albeit very late in the proceedings, but (laughs) he's the one who has some fragment of a soul. Mm Mm-hmm. After we've traveled through 14 years of these people's lives, we find that Bruce Willis has become a drunk. He can't even operate anymore. He's He refers to his wife, Meryl Streep's character, as it. There's a great scene when the maid, he's now is taken to sleeping on the floor of his Beverly Hills mansion, and the maid comes in with his daily breakfast, which is a Bloody Mary. That's it. He throws the celery aside. Yeah, there's a lot of great touches like this, and I I think a lot of that is the director, Robert Zemeckis, who you'll know from the Back to the Future trilogy, Mm -hmm. from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Absolutely. uh, Tales from the Crypt was going on at this time, and you can definitely see a lot of that. All these really little character details throughout the movie. Bruce Willis is constantly throwing things away, (laughs) like the celery from the Bloody Mary. Throws away regular latex gloves to put on heavy-duty leather ones. and As uh, he's going to work on a dead body because his plastic surgery failed him after his alcoholism became so bad. And now he is a, what is it, a cosmetologist for the dead. In a movie that's full of kind of just mean-spirited humor throughout, I think one of the meanest scenes of the movie happens really early when he's doing a house call for this famous actor and he says that, oh, I'll try and put as much depth into him as possible. And the, the representative of the actor says, no, we want him to look as he looked in life. Don't give him depth. And <laughs> It's a really searing indictment of kind of the superficial, Beverly Hills culture and just vanity at large. I mean, entirely, that's pretty much what the movie is. Mm -hmm. You know, you have Meryl Streep who goes to an event for Goldie Hawn's book release. I keep referring to them as the actresses' names. That's easier. I think that's a lot easier. Meryl Streep and Bruce Willis go to the book release for Goldie Hawn's character. And first they identify a 
mousy looking obese woman and they think that's her and then she steps aside and you see this gorgeous youthful magnetic goldie hahn and like a backless red gown yeah of course bruce willis is like damn it what have i done they have really mean lighting and they've got Meryl Streep all done up kind of doubtily. They've done a swap with these women. You kind of don't know what's going on, but ultimately Meryl Streep, when she's struggling with her, you know, inadequacies and feeling of losing all of her fame and youth and attractiveness, she goes to this kind of witchy woman played by Isabella Rossellini. Great. (laughs) Who's wonderful and gorgeous, who gives her this magic serum that makes her youthful again. Isabella Rossellini is kind of everything that both of the two leads want to be, right? She's absolutely beautiful. She's timeless. She's got this almost Egyptian flair. The black bob and her like huge necklaces that barely cover her breasts. She's really not quite wearing clothing at all. She has Fabio as her bodyguard. <laughs> and what Isabella Rossellini is offering is basically the secret to eternal life. I mean, there's been a lot of stories throughout history of, you know, this sort of fountain of youth. And this movie does a really good job of kind of putting it into an extremely vain early 90s Beverly Hills light. Yeah, and the serum essentially kind of preserves you as you are, right? It doesn't offer healing effects, as we see later when these women fill themselves with holes and break their bones and do horrible, horrible things to each other. Yeah, I think the most iconic imagery from the movie, and it's even on the poster for the film, uh, or at least the the video box art, the perfect hole through Goldie Hawn's (laughs) stomach where Meryl Streep blasted her with a shotgun, and Meryl Streep's really unnerving 360 degrees broken neck that she's able to bend and stretch, and I think that just the image of these two mutilated starlets is is really the most iconic and lasting image from this movie, even oh, beyond yeah. the nebbish Bruce Willis or the foxy Isabella Rossellini. Absolutely. I think one of the other things that talking about Isabella Rossellini's part in the serum makes me think of is this movie itself is kind of timeless. They do have that sort of art deco revival that was mm-hmm. really popular in the 90s. You see that a lot in Tales from the Crypt. I'm sure that's not a coincidence since Robert Zemeckis had such a huge hand in that. But... Things like refusing to reveal the exact cost of this serum so that, you know, given inflation, it'll always seem like it's extremely expensive because mm-hmm. there's enough for Meryl Streep to balk at. And yeah. it's kind of in an alternate reality where they yeah. light up rooms with candelabras. Yeah. And there was something I noticed, too, about the costuming that Meryl Streep wearing something that Grace Kelly could have worn. It's sort of timeless clothing as well. It doesn't have a heavily 90s or 80s feel. Isabella Rossellini's wardrobe could barely be called costumes. It's more just objects that obscure her nipples. And Bruce Willis, I feel like male characters, I guess it was very popular at the time to have very baggy suits. I mean, you Mm. see this a lot in the James Bond films. Timothy Dalton was definitely a victim of that in the late 80s. But uh, I think that with Bruce Willis, it really works. We are kind of concealing his body behind these clothes. And he's supposed to be sort of this drunk who's down on his luck. And uh, And so that doesn't feel dated to me. 
the wardrobe choices with him. Well, and I think one of the other things, too, is that that baggy sort of suit makes it look like it's just ill-fitting, you yeah. know, that he just couldn't even be bothered to get something that fit. What happens when you have a Bloody Mary for breakfast every morning? <laughs> to quickly sum up the, the rest of the movie, for those that haven't seen it, I would say that Goldie Hawn has made it her mission to get back at Meryl Streep and... This results in them both dying, but because they've both taken the yeah. serum, they Actually. can't die, but their bodies do are slowly decaying mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because the tissue itself is dead, and Bruce Willis feels obliged to help them out, at least for the beginning of this harrowing ordeal. One of the things you pointed out, it's like he's confronted death as it as death's cosmetologist so he doesn't really find that appealing he also has seen what these women have done to themselves and each other i mean no one understands vanity more inside and out than bruce willis's character does because he's seen that even in death these celebrities and a-listers need a cosmetologist to come in and apply mannequin paint to their faces so he's really gotten a heavy dose of it so it, it makes sense that he's the one who comes away with the big lesson, whereas Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn pretty much learn nothing throughout Mm -hmm. the course of the movie. They don't really have character arcs. They come to live with each other. The only ones who, as Meryl Streep says it, can paint each other's asses throughout (laughs) eternity. Come up with some sort of treaty between themselves, but they're still not bonded. They're not friends. I think one of my favorite sequences in the movie is when Bruce Willis attempts to take Meryl Streep, who's just broken her neck, to the hospital. (laughs) And there's one of those great scenes where a doctor is checking all the vital signs of this person who's obviously dead. It happens in another one of my favorite movies, Return of the Living Dead. And just all the vital signs are coming negative. Her eyes are dilated. Her body temperature is really low. And then he goes off and has a heart attack and dies, this doctor. So he really caused his death. Yeah. Yeah, just from the shock of this zombie Meryl Streep. And uh, one of my favorite sequences right after that, and I think my favorite line of the film is when he comes back to the room where Meryl Streep has fainted, who, mind you, does not have a pulse, and a nurse tells Bruce Willis that she's been taken to the morgue, and Bruce Willis is the best line of the movie when he says, The morgue shall be furious! (laughs) And that's why I feel like Bruce Willis is really... Uh, Kevin Klein is originally supposed to play this role, but I feel like Bruce Willis has these little pockets of manic behavior that yeah. are that are great, and that's just one example of it. Yeah, I just do not think Kevin Klein would have been as good at the choice. I don't think it would have worked as well. He's a little too good looking. I don't know if they could have dressed him down quite as much. And he's just so manic all the time, so up and excited. Disappointed! <laughs> And this morgue sequence is like the stuff of nightmares. I remember this image as a kid where Bruce Willis gets into the morgue uh, trying to find Meryl Streep and this, I can only describe it as like a coven of floating nuns. They just, these whispering (laughs) nuns just float by him as if their feet aren't touching the ground. It's just so horrifying. This kind of throwaway gag is never explained. It's completely outside of the main supernatural event of the movie, which is this potion. But just in the midst of all this, we have some (laughs) flying nuns pass by. You know that was just them wanting to have fun with it, really. It doesn't make any sense. Like, are we to assume that was just in his mind, or are there really these supernatural nuns? Like, there was this whole other movie that was just 
sort of intersecting with in that one moment. I think I was just kind of establishing that this isn't our world, but it's really not their world either because they don't understand it. Yeah, this uh, film also gives us a dark comedic sort of view into why people see dead celebrities all over the place. And all of these guys have taken the serum and just faked their own deaths or disappeared or whatever. So they have a huge party at the creepy Egyptian uh, mansion that Isabella Rossellini has. And you see Elvis... James Dean makes an appearance with his car, with his Porsche, which upset really, you. <laughs> I thought that was in poor taste. Of all the gags in the movie, I think Bruce Willis driving off in an immortal James Dean's Porsche is a little too much for me. Too much on the macabre side, going into the grotesque. There's the idea that there's a secret society of immortal A-list celebrities. And there's too many cameos to mention of, like, celebrity impersonators. But, but yeah, the big ones are, like, Elvis, Marilyn Monroe, James Dean. I really like that idea, and I feel like they touched on it just enough. They didn't really get bogged down in it. So Bruce Willis makes his escape. He hasn't taken the serum. He's managed not to be killed by the crazy, crazy women. 36 seven years later and we're at Bruce Willis's funeral which is being watched in the back by uh, Mel- Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn whose faces are veiled so we can't see what horrible things they've done to themselves with mannequin paint. And I like the idea that the one person who really didn't care about Im- immortality one way or another is the one who's sort of granted a full life. He kind of gets another chance and seems to live a full life and... Has he, a bunch of kids. He finds immortality through family, which of yeah. course Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep cackle at because they've, again, they've learned nothing from this whole experience. It's like got some of those deeper questions about what makes your life matter. You know, so celebrity... Uh, Is it that deep? Is it that deep? I don't know, because, like, you see him, he got away and he managed to die. He had a good life. And you see them tottering away with these broken up bodies, skin peeling, all because they wanted to be beautiful. I think that there's sort of a flaw in the climax of this movie in the sense that, you know, Bruce Willis is dangling above what's almost certain death. They're goading him to drink the potion that so that he'll be able to survive the fall. But to me, that's no choice at all. Like, of course, you don't drink the potion because he's seen firsthand that he wouldn't quite be immortal. He'd be in pieces yeah. forever. Like, he'd, it's basically having consciousness forever. You don't have... Yeah, exactly. That's why I feel like this is really kind of a raw deal, drinking this potion Mm -hmm. and that was really the only choice he could have made was to toss the potion away you're supposed to see that against these two women who so lacked substance that they were just so focused on their appearance that they're now just doomed to this horrible life ending up in pieces i could think of nothing worse than eternal consciousness no matter the yeah. state of your body i mean by the the ending of this movie it's, is really dark and it's horrific horrifying because they crumble to pieces and their severed heads are still talking and they've basically been crumbled into dust they they can't really move anymore but they still have the company of each other forever which is yeah. kind of the biggest punishment of all when bruce willis is rattling off the reasons why he wouldn't want to take the potion number one was that he'd have to spend eternity with them like these horrible people i mean our two high contrasts are bruce willis who chooses death and isabella rossellini who loves her body and takes care of herself and cares more 
to her life. If Isabella Rossellini is the standard that they're really reaching towards, it seems like she barely does anything. I mean, she's this so committed to preserving herself. I mean, she claims that she's 71 years old, but she's. I think that we're supposed to assume that she's thousands of years old. Yeah, I think we are too, and especially her taking the serum out of a uh, box that clearly had Egyptian-inspired uh, designs on it. But I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard to say because they left her purposefully mysterious, so you can't really tell. Which is a smart choice, but... I think that it's definitely clear that she's taken very good care of herself, whether it's 71 yeah. years or 71,000 years. Like, she's devoted her life to just making sure that nothing happens to her physical yeah. form. I don't know if she enjoys that, but she seems to be content enough. And she's social. She has those parties with all the dead celebrities. Once a spring, she <laughs> gets together all her dead celebrity friends. And she gets a Fabio and two dogs to protect her. Yeah. We should talk about the all alternate ending. Yeah, the, I, apparently there's a really negative test screening with some sort of original ending which is impossible to find, but you can find descriptions of it. They're investigating the idea of preserving themselves through basically like cryogenics or freezing and it ended with them in the Swiss Alps. It would show them in the Swiss Alps and they couldn't figure out what to do. They were just bored with life because life wouldn't end. But I think we get that and more from the from the funeral ending. Besides the special effects, which are admittedly impressive for their time, I think the best thing going for this movie is the cast. It's a it's an amazing cast, and particularly Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn, I think it's so brave for women at this stage in their career to take on these roles where both of them are just really made to be ugly inside and out. Mm-hmm. These are not flattering yeah. roles for these women, and just the way that Hollywood kind of chews up actresses and spits them out. Meryl Streep has been able to sustain a career for decades and decades, but you never know that. It seems like an actress's career is always in jeopardy because of just how vain this very culture that they're skewering is. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing that they'd be willing to be photographed like this. It's not, I mean, not just Goldie Hawn in the fat suit during the uh, cat lady phase, but Mm -hmm. just the way that they're lit. You just really see these characters go through the ringer. And, you know, well, a male actor can often be commended for making choices like that, Robert De Niro and Raging Bull or something. It, for women to do this, it's I think it really takes a lot of bravery given Hollywood's shallowness. Yeah, I think while the film picks up a lot of tropes that aren't friendly toward women, like the idea that women are catty with each other, that they're in competition over men, that you know there's a sort of stress and, and superficiality toward their appearance and stuff like that, but it, it doesn't seem like the film buys into those tropes. It's making fun of them or criticizing them a little bit. It's tied in pretty well with an entertaining story line and so it makes it a really interesting one to watch considering the Hollywood culture and everything. One thing that I noticed during the film is that when Goldie Hawn is sort of plotting um, how she and Bruce Willis will murder Meryl Streep so she can finally live out her mad fantasy. Which is another great sequence. (laughs) This is a wonderful wonderful sequence but we kind of get this vision of her of her plan and we see it play out and one of the interesting things is while Goldie Hawn is saying this, this is after she's made her transformation, taken the serum and is absolutely gorgeous. She's wearing a red dress, totally sexy diva quality 
And in her fantasy, she's wearing a white dress and Meryl Streep's wearing a red dress. There's, there's like this reversal and you can kind of tell, you know, in her madness, she's been emulating Meryl Streep because she's become an entirely different character from the beginning of the film. In the beginning of the film, she was really drab and just insecure, sort of whiny, shy, that sort of thing. And then you have this reversal where now she's this sexy, you know, the sex pot that just knows what she wants and gets what she wants. She's, you kind of wonder if she just watched too many of the Meryl Meryl Streep's characters' movies. One of the reasons this film works is that neither of them have redeeming qualities to them. (laughs) Which is a strong choice. (laughs) I, I like that too. I feel like this is the product of someone who is very angry and very cynical. Like it's not... It's odd because it's this perfect mixture of being very dark and very mean-spirited, but also kind of light-hearted, and it's it's a very light watch. You know, there's nothing really heavy about it, even though it's dealing with death and immortality and vanity. But it, it really seems like Robert Zemeckis is in a bad place in his life when he made this, because it could just be that a lot of the Tales from the Crypt stuff was rubbing off on him. He'd just done the Back to the Future movies. Maybe he was just kind of fed up with the Hollywood system at this time. I don't know, it's just conjecture on my part. Another thing that's really memorable about this movie is Alan Silvestri's score. I mean, Alan Silvestri's done all the scores for Robert Zemeckis' stuff, but this one in particular is, it kind of calls to mind a lot of the classic monster movies of Mm -hmm. the Universal Pictures era, kind of the golden age when you had Frankenstein and Dracula and the Wolfman, and (laughs) it's a very sort of magical score, especially when they're applying the potion to their hands, and it's a very big, sweeping orchestral score, as Alan Silvestri is prone to do, and it's it's really like, once I heard the opening notes of this piece, kind of the suite that opens the movie, I (laughs) immediately remembered it, and it, it just calls to mind a lot of things like Sunset Boulevard or All About Eve, kind of classic Hollywood It's also very macabre and ghoulish, (laughs) which, you know, it's the kind of thing you could could imagine being piped into, like, a mortician's office or something. (laughs) So what was it about this movie that made you pick it? Like, what, what about it really grabbed you when you were younger? I really enjoyed dark comedies when I was a kid, even though I think some of it definitely went over my head. I think the aesthetic of this movie really appealed to me, too. I found that really interesting. I was also just, I think, I never thought about directors or movie makers or anything, but I think I was partly drawn to this movie because I really loved Two Framed Roger Rabbit and um, Back to the Future when I was little. This movie had sort of an interesting release. I mean, I think to this day, a lot of people look at this as a real misstep for Meryl Streep and maybe even Goldie Hawn. I don't know about Goldie Hawn, but I know I've read articles where, you know, movie reviewers are going over some ne- a new Meryl Streep release. They're talking about awards she's won, and they'll have some kind of comment about, oh, except for that one movie she did, Death Becomes Her, that was a misstep. This movie was oddly savaged by critics at the time. Siskel and Ebert gave it two thumbs down and said, well, the special effects were nifty. They thought that all the characters were really flat. And I think that that's really just because it it is like a feature-length Tales from the Crypt episode. I mean, it does kind of, I mean, sort of a lighthearted version of that. So I was surprised Uh that people were hard on it because of that. And it only broke even at the box office, probably because it's such a mean and twisted movie that didn't connect with the heart. Land. 
I think I think viewers probably wanted characters that were more likable. How do I say it? Like I don't like them, but I enjoy watching them when I when I see this movie. And I think that's why it's become such a cult favorite because they're such odious, catty people, and yeah. it's it's it was destined to be a midnight movie, but it just so happened to be budgeted as this huge blockbuster directed by one of the most successful directors of all time with three huge A-list stars. I think that it always was really going to have this destiny, even in like drag revivals and things (laughs) like that. It's very big in the gay community. It's so iconic, like the set design and the the costume design, like everything that they did about it, you know. There's a lot of camp to it also. Absolutely, Yeah. yeah. One of the other things I was thinking was, uh, you know, this movie wasn't a hit. They thought it could be a hit. And one of the funnier things was watching an interview with Bruce Willis at the time. (laughs) Because Bruce Willis didn't even seem to want to talk about the movie in the interview. The interviewer kept trying to get him to talk about it. Instead, he was talking about whether or not the Babylonians invented pontoons. All the historical interviews, or I guess I should say vintage interviews at the time of this movie's (laughs) release, really seems like the three leads had a really rough time making it. I think that the special effects work, which did go on to win an Oscar. Which it deserved. Which it definitely deserved, but I feel like at the time, special effects were so primitive that it was really exhausting for the actors to have to act towards a lamp, or be five centimeters to the left of the frame, or this and that, and Meryl Streep, I know, has publicly really said that she hated working on it. Bruce Willis seems like a crazy person in this interview from 1992. (laughs) It seems like he, he just is completely blown off the movie and is, yes, going off on this diatribe about Babylonian pontoons. <laughs> and he even mentions how, like, he had made a statement about Babylonian pontoons before and people kept contradicting him and he didn't understand why and it just wasn't going to be solved. He's an odd duck, that Bruce Willis. <laughs> he's been in some of my favorite films, but he's a very odd person. So I guess with this cast, it was sort of a surprise that it broke even. It made $58 million against a $55 million budget. It lost out to things that year like Scent of a Woman and The Crying Game. It came in behind Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. And House Sitter, another Goldie <laughs> Hawn movie it was bested by. Not a good sign for Death Becomes Her, although, again, it's done a much better on video release. All right, so we've talked about this quite a bit. This is your tape, Lindsay. What do you say? Buy it, rent it, tape over it? I'm going to say buy it if you really like dark comedy. Has it held up for you? For me, I think it has. Some of the charms that it had as a kid, I'm sure, are different for me now. I think one of the things that's nice is I'm sure I get all the jokes now, which I probably didn't when I was younger. But I think it held up. I'm going to say rent it. Uh, for me, this is something that you could see every 10 or 15 years. And it's, I mean, I guess it's a good thing that it's very memorable. Mm-hmm. Even though it had been a long time since I'd seen this, I kind of knew all the beats. Like that yeah. scene where Meryl Streep is creeping up with her broken neck and <laughs> things like that. I don't know. I think that my main complaint with it, you know, it's perfect in a visual sense and the casting is great. But I think that there's just not a whole lot to it for me. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like its characters. It's a little shallow at times. Yeah. And it is just kind of a lot of 
gallows humor, mm -hmm. which is great. I mean, that's what it is. But I don't think that I would include myself amongst the cult of people that really hold this up as like an immortal cult classic. <laughs> I think that I, I don't know. I, I like it, but not enough to buy. I, and I can understand that. Like, I don't necessarily think that it's a major classic that everybody should watch this, but I feel like for an audience that likes a light but dark film, it would be really fun. And it's interesting, too, because this is the same guy who did Forrest Gump, which <laughs> there are, like, wildly differing opinions about that movie. I'm kind of neutral about it, but Forrest Gump is a movie that, depending on who you are, is this incredibly, like, good-spirited, uplifting movie, or a very, like, cynical movie. Uh, and you can kind of look at it both ways. I, I think that it's a little bit of a cynical movie, because it's basically saying that you can be an idiot and still go far in this country. Uh, other people uh. tend to view it a different way. I think it's, uh, but I think that there are a lot of parallels between, oddly, between Death Becomes Her and Forrest Gump. I think that Robert Zemeckis is kind of a cynical dude. I mean, you see his cynicism in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, yeah, that's an incredibly cynical film. I do think that he's one of the best mainstream directors. Uh, he has a very definitive voice and doesn't really seem to like people a whole lot, but <laughs> he's made some amazing films. I think Back to the Future being my favorite. All right, so that wraps up September, and mm -hmm. now we're moving on to my favorite month of the year, October. And what have you selected for us next time, Sean? Well, we're each getting sort of a Halloween episode. <laughs> the spooky season is upon us once again. I couldn't be more excited. And you know, I really put a lot of thought into this. Halloween coming up, I wanted a seasonal horror film because let's face it, I could do Scream or Nightmare on Elm Street any time of the year. I really wanted something that tied into the holiday. Uh, my favorite trick or treat never made it to VHS. It just missed that era by a little bit. I thought about John Carpenter's original Halloween or any of its better sequels, 2, 3, and H2O being my favorites. But I decided to go for a little bit of a wild card. It's unexpected. I've selected the 1993 made-for-TV Olsen Twins classic? Double, double, toil and trouble. I still can't believe that you watched that as a kid, because that was one of my favorite movies when I was little. Well, look, I've always been a Halloween fanatic. I was born in the month of October. Anything that was remotely related to Halloween, whether it be like the Simpsons Halloween specials, Hocus Pocus, or anything like that, I was very much into. And for some reason, Double Double Toil and Trouble, you know, it's kind of perfect for this show because it's a little bit obscure. I have not seen it in maybe 15 or 20 years. And yeah, it's just one that I'm excited to take a look at. For those of you who haven't seen it, the Olsen twins, I believe they're six or seven years old and they're I think that they're fighting witches so we'll see how that goes probably pretty well given it's the twins so tune in week after next as we begin a very special tapeheads halloween that's it for this episode thanks for listening and if you'd like to support us help us out a little bit go to iTunes and give us a rating, give us a review. Uh, we'd love to see any of your feedback. You can email us at tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com. You can also look us up on our website and check out the latest news, tapeheadspodcast.com. I'd also like to thank Will Price, as always, for use of his theme, Mandatory Groove. You can find more of Will's music at soundcloud.com.com. SoundCloud.com slash Gargantulon. So that's it for Tapeheads. I've been Sean. And I've been Lindsay. 
Until next time.